so much of our own life right now in our own culture in our country is seems politically invested and it's not I think just that we live in in DC I think that uh, there is a a new phenomenon new recently or more expanded recently where the importance of politics is expanded into every area of life where you see this around the country and I confess that when I moved to the the DC area I was somewhat politically naive Uh, I didn't follow politics I was aware that there were two parties barely um, was the extent of my political awareness and I have received an education since being out here Um, some of my uh, closest friends work in the Heritage Foundation or work for different uh, politicians uh, on the hill in their offices and um, so I, I have been I've been educated, as they would say since moving out here and yet it's been interesting to me that my friends who work for for senators or congressmen or who work in lobbying and politics or even uh, who work in the White House outside of work they don't seem that invested in the politics of the thing and I don't know if you've noticed that Uh, through your time but those who are mostly involved in working in politics seem to care less about it outside of office hours and those who don't work in politics that seem somewhat ramped up about it or somewhat amped up where everything is a major issue and our country is hanging on the brink unless you know this happens or that happens and it's all over it's all over seriously pack up and go home cancel the Super Bowl we're done here And that seems to be what I'm saying that I've noticed spreading uh, in our country where I think of friends and family members that I have outside of the D.C. area who are not political, at least haven't been their whole life, suddenly seem extremely invested in things. (laughs) Uh, And I blame Facebook, honestly. I mean, Facebook's not in the room. You're not looking at it right now. It's not in the room. So you can always blame the person who's not in the room. I blame Facebook for this. But I think there is a truth that too much of our lives are, we put too much hope in politics. Senator Ben Sass, I'm sure some of you heard his speech recently, and if not, then you're already applying it. <laughs> Lamented recently that too many people put too much hope in politics and do too much for them. He wrote, this is in an uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, more of us, quote, more of us are placing politics at the center of our lives both sides increasingly believe in a grand solution to our political dysfunction that can be found inside of politics. And he went on, if you read that article in the Wall Street Journal last week, he went on to say that the thing that's tearing our country apart is people that are hoping in government to, to solve our country's problem. And he makes some profound points in there. He's a, a member of a Baptist church just down the street in um, Springfield. And so I know he's coming at this from a Christian perspective which is helpful to fill this out where he's lamenting the idea that you think it's strange coming from a senator but he's lamenting the idea that you're putting too much hope in government to fix your problems and government's not meant to fix your problems at least not the kind of problems that you're ascribing to it there is a nobility to working in politics like there is in any work there's an ability to being a police officer or to being a lawyer or a teacher or a plumber or whatever and all occupation is made by God for common grace for the common good and especially in politics your actions affect more people than maybe the plumber's actions who's working for the common good one house at a time 
whereas politicians can have a, a wider net. And obviously there's good to be done. There's injustices in the world that should be confronted. There's sin in the world that's allowed that should be uh, illegal or prohibited or discouraged. Nevertheless, you can see that the hope people put in politics is beyond just that. It's beyond, you know, this is the right tax rate or these are the right laws. And it really is to the point where people have this perception if politics don't go a certain way, then what is going to happen to us? There is no hope for the future. What kind of country will my kids grow up in? It's, again, it's all over. Now that I say is somewhat new, just from my own experience. I've been more exposed to it recently. Perhaps for you it's, it's old. I don't think it's new in the world. I think it is a, a tendency that has been throughout world history, for especially as governments have, have waxed and waned, that on the waxing side of things, people put their confidence in the ability of government to solve their problems and to do good for them. And that's certainly the case in Babylon. You need to understand, as we jump into Daniel 2 tonight, what was happening in the world in the time of the Babylonians. The Assyrians had been the strong nation. They were the ones that were, were ruling. There were other strong nations as well, like the Egyptians. The Babylonians were, were nobody. When the Bible first speaks of the Babylonians, they're talked about some outlier group that, you know, a prophet says, one of these days they're going to come knocking. And people rolled their eyes and laughed. And the Babylonians did conquer, first with the Assyrians, and then basically what was at this time the known world, the connected world to the Mediterranean basin. There's other empires. You think of empires in in southern Africa at this time or in, in Asia at this time, but they're different categorically than what was happening in the Mediterranean basin because that area, it intersects so much of the world. You know, the, the Babylonian Empire could expand into what is modern-day Europe, modern-day Africa, modern-day Asia. It had this conglomerate effect that was unlike other empires, even bigger empires in the world. It stood out. I described it to you last week. I won't repeat it, but what going into Babylon looked like. It was designed to be intimidating. It, Babylonians would take their captives from around the empire and parade them to their capital city with the massive walls that were, you know, 300 feet tall, 100 yards in the air, the temple in the middle of it, the streets lined with this blue ceramic tile that was glistening. The whole city was designed to be disorienting for the visitor. You would come in and you wouldn't know where you were, but this temple would be right at the center of everything in the the king would be at the top of it. This is the second generation of Babylonians. So when Daniel is taken into exile, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He's, he's new on the throne. His father had died just recently. His father was the one who built this, this empire. Again, nothing like the Babylonian uh, empire had ever existed in the world before. As I mentioned, there had been other empires like the Assyrians and in other parts of the world like China and whatnot, but this is just categorically different because it transcended cultural boundaries. The Chaldeans were the culture of the Babylonians. It's a small part of their empire. It transcended what modern day continents, it transcended mountain ranges. I mean, this thing was designed to build people together around a common government, a common identity. And so this is really your first time where the religion and the politics of the empire are merged to give people stability and hope where people begin to put their hope in what the government can do for them. Now, I mentioned this is not a new sin. This sin goes back to the Tower of Babel, that if only we can get together and build tall enough, then we can finally get things done around here. <laughs> we can get God off our backs and run the world the right way. And God, of course, scatters our languages, destroys the tower, and it's, it's all over. There's a letter from Ken Ham, Ken Ham recently. This is not in my notes. From Ken Ham recently, trying to raise money to build a Tower of Babel at the Ark. Um, I would encourage you not, not to give. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> In Babylon, that's what's happening here. There's this 
structure that's built in the middle to give people their corporate identity. It transcends language, it transcends their previous national boundaries and borders. There's taxation that's part of it, but it's beyond that. It's beyond the taxation. It is the religion and the politics of the thing mixed together to really drive the world forward. And this king, this new king, he, this was not his idea, this was his dad's idea who implemented it. And now this new king, Nebuchadnezzar, is on the throne. Daniel and his friends have been taken into captivity like so many people from so many other parts of the world brought in there. And this chapter serves as a warning to us, a reminder to us not to put our hope in politics, not to put our hope in government, not to put our hope or expectations into human rulers, human taxation systems, human political systems, not to put our hope into things that weren't meant to bear it. Government is meant to regulate evil. It's meant to check evil. That, of course, is how God designed it back in Genesis 9. It's meant to bear the sword. It's meant to collect taxes for the common good. It's a form of common grace. This is all described in Romans 9 and, uh, sorry, Romans th uh, 13 and Genesis 9. Yet when people put their identity into it, their confidence into it, their hope, when your emotional stability rides on it, it's a warning sign. And that's certainly the world that Daniel found himself into. Now, God is going to reorient us He's going to take the politics of the thing outside of Israel, outside of Babylon, and reorient us in the right way to view the history of the world. And he does that through this amazing chapter, Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Henry Ironside, who was one of the pastors at Moody Church, he wrote, quote, Daniel 2 is the most simple yet complete picture of prophecy in all the Bible. It's a pretty high praise. The most simple yet complete picture of prophecy in all the Bible. This does, this chapter does have all the makings of a bad Harry Potter spinoff. You've got a nervous king who doesn't know what to do. You've got a bunch of incompetent sorcerers that don't know how to cast a spell. And you've got a hobbit hobbling in stage left to save the day. Maybe Daniel wasn't like a hobbit, but it makes the Harry Potter picture complete. I want you to let the power of this prophecy hit you. What you're going to see in this chapter is a complete overview there's no hobbits in Harry Potter. Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Would you believe it if I told you I've never actually seen a Harry Potter movie? Apparently you would now. Yeah. I'm carrying on. You should let the power of this prophecy hit you. And now what you're going to see here starts from the head, the golden head. It starts with the first empire that has united the world like this ever. And it will carry through through the chest, the legs, the feet, all the way down to the toes. And it will cover every major empire that will rule this section, the Africa, Asia, European section of the world throughout history from past tense all the way until the coming of Christ. The whole thing will be captured right here. And God is giving it. It's so interesting that God does not give this prophecy to the Jewish prophets. That's what is the most unusual thing about Daniel. You would expect this prophecy to come from Isaiah. And Isaiah does give prophecies in the future about future kingdoms. Namely, uh, Cyrus is going to rebuild Israel. So this idea of future prophecies, it's in the, the wheelhouse of what God's prophets do, but it is not what God gives one of Israelite prophets. 
He doesn't give this job to them. He's talking about global history here. And so he has a bigger view than Israel. That's what's so key here. He's a bigger view than Israel. To drive that point home, this prophecy is not even given in Hebrew like the rest of the Old Testament is. It's going to switch in verse 4 to Aramaic. And the, the author will stay in Aramaic through much of the book until he returns to prophecies about Israel later. There will be more prophecies about Israel that's later on in the book. But for several chapters now, starting in chapter 2, he's switching to Aramaic to drive home the point. This is not a Jewish thing we're talking about here. This is global government. It's not a, a unique thing to Israel. They are, Israel is one of many nations in Babylonian captivity. Many nations have been conquered by them. Israel is not unique. They used to be unique, unique when they had the promise that God gave them, but they have lost that because of their own sin. And so God gives a pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar is the most cited, most quoted about, most talked about pagan king in all of the Old Testament. And that's because this prophecy comes to him, a prophecy that will describe world history from top to bottom. I'm going to give you an outline tonight, the world's view of the future, how to see the future, different categories of the way people look forward into the future. And first, we're going to talk about how non-believers see the future, how non-believers see the future. They have a dark view of the future. They're unable to see it clearly. It is dim, it is unclear, it is cloudy, it is foggy. Non-believers are very bad. You could compare them to political pollsters. They're very bad at seeing the future. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, chapter two, verse one says, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Let me just pause because I know some of you might ask this question later. Daniel was in training for three years. He's out of training by chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar was the king when Daniel entered into training. Now this is happening in the second year of his reign. And I could just picture somebody asking, how's that possible? The chronology of this doesn't line up. Some people want to say the events of Daniel 2 were happening inside of Daniel 1. I don't think so because it seems like Daniel... graduated back in uh, verse 17 of chapter one. It seems like he's out of his three years of training and all of his time of training happened under Nebuchadnezzar though. Most commentaries would point out that the Hebrews and the, uh, the Gentiles measured years differently in different ways. And we can understand that when we have the similar kind of, you think, you think of our Lord's crucifixion as why this is important. He was in the grave for three days, but it was, you know, you could almost say in American hours, one day, you know, if you're going to count hours, but it was three days. It was Friday. He went in late on Friday, Saturday, rose early on Sunday. Uh, Americans would be just as likely as not to call that one day, but the Bible makes a big deal of it, three days. This is the same kind of chronology here in the Hebrew mind. It was three years of Daniel's training. Uh, had all been completed. But in the Gentile mind, and we know the exact time this happened. It happened in March or, March or April of 603 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar had been king for, in English, you would say three years. But in the Babylonian system, he had just started his second year because any part of a year doesn't count. That's his ascension year. In our politics, we inaugurate our president in January. That whole first year would not count as year one. It wouldn't be until what we would call the second year that they would call the first year, your first complete year. And that's what's happening Here, I make a big deal about that just so you know the Bible is trustworthy. But secondly, so you have an understanding of why Jesus went in the grave on Friday and rose on Sunday and yet he was three days and you're doing math in your mind. They're like, I count one. Um, It's not that the Jews couldn't count. It's just that they counted differently. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural. Lots of dreams, verse one says. Um, Not just a reoccurring dream, many dreams. And these vexed him. His spirit was troubled, verse one says. His sleep had left him. He's unable to sleep because he's being afflicted by these dreams. 
Now, what was going on in this time? As I mentioned, he'd been on the uh, king, we would say, the Jews would say three years. You know, he had the ascension year and he's starting. He's in his third, third year here now. What was happening that time, 603? Well, Ashkelon, one of the areas that had been conquered by Babylon, had rebelled. It was at the edge of the empire. They rebelled. And Nebuchadnezzar is new on the throne. Remember, his dad died. And he had sent much of the army out there, these huge battering rams, these huge uh, sieges to knock down the, the door. It was all taking place. And he was losing sleep probably because of that. It's his first major military conflict as king. And it's going on now in Ashkelon. Babylon was at war on his watch. And during this, he's having dreams. It'd be natural, this young king who's a little bit out of his element, you could think, is troubled by what's going to happen in the future. And so the king, in verse 2, commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, magicians is those that could cast spells. Pharaoh had those in his court. Babylon had part of Egypt under his control. It's likely even some, some of those magicians from the Egyptians were, were there. The enchanters, they're the ones that could cast spells. Remember, this is a, a conglomeration of an empire. All kinds of different cultures are together here. Sorcerers, and these are part of the, the group that Daniel is. Daniel was trained in this craft you read back in chapter one. As well as the Chaldeans. Those would be of the same ethnicity of the king here. They were summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Remember, they're supposedly very good at interpreting dreams. This is what they were, were trained to do, we read back in chapter one. And they were supposed to know all wisdom, all literature, how to write the Babylonian language, and also how to interpret dreams. So the king summons them and says, I'm having dreams. And that's kind of, kind of neat, I guess, if you're a king and you have a whole squadron of your government devoted to dream interpretation, and now you happen to have dreams that are keeping you up at night. <laughs> I know just who to call. I've got a whole battalion of people that are supposedly experts at this kind of stuff. Let me summon them. Get the cabinet secretary, the undersecretary of dream interpretation up here stat. And so they come in. Verse three, the king said to them, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled. I want to know the dream. This is a pretty straightforward request if you're a dream interpreter, right? This is how all their phone calls go. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and here's where the, the writing switches from Hebrew to Aramaic, and we'll stay there. Oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll show you the interpretation. This is exactly how fortune tellers work. I hope you don't fall for that trap. I love seeing like the signs, for, you know, palm reading or fortune telling, $15. And there was one by my house in LA that had a, a little sign underneath it once that said under new management. I just thought that was so funny. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. This is how it rolls. You know, tell us about it and we'll tell you what it means. I read in a uh, psychological journal this afternoon, if you're wondering how I spent my afternoon, the most common dreams. Let me rattle them off to you and then tell you what psychologists say they mean. Falling, supposedly one, one of, if not the most com common dream. It means that something in your life is out of control. You don't say. <laughs> teeth falling out. Well, that's a very, apparently a very common dream that your teeth are falling out. Or <laughs> Some of you are thinking, I've never had a dream, but I will now. Great. Um, <laughs> That also means something in your life is out of control. Okay. Uh, third most common dream, showing up naked at work. You know what that means? Something in your work is, you guys are so good at this. You could be a Babylonian dream interpreter right now. A test situation. 
Apparently people dream that they're going through tests or they're back in school. That means that you have stress at work because something at work is dying. Common dream that you, you die. I thought you couldn't die in your dreams, but apparently, I guess you wake up right at the last minute. I'm not sure. That means that there's a desire for you to cut something in your life off, for you to finally finish or complete something and be done with it, likely because I think it's out of control. Flying. Now, there's two kinds of flying dreams. One is that you are flying high and you're flying wherever you want to go. And that means that you're in charge and you're in control and you're feeling good about things in your life. The other kind of flying dream is that you're, you're low and you can't land. You can't get down to the ground. You just can't do it. And that means that something in life is, oh man, you're being chased is another dream. And psychologists say the key of the chasing dream is to look at what is chasing you and then to understand that that's something you're doing in life that you should stop doing. Just stop doing that in life and it'll stop chasing you in your dreams. People get paid for this. Like the key to understanding that dream is understanding what was chasing you. you got it. Uh, water. Water symbolizes something in your life is, especially if it's stormy water, that something in your life is out of control. Uh, vehicles, common dream. I won't bore you with the rest of my list, but vehicle, uh, last one I'll give you. Vehicles. It depends on what kind of vehicle. Is it a fast vehicle and are you in control of it? Then great, you're doing well. Is it a slow vehicle? Then you're being frustrated about life. Is it a fast out of control vehicle? Then something in your life is out of, you know, the theme here is that you're not in control of your life. You got that? And your dreams are aware of that. And Nebuchadnezzar is aware of that. He's saying, I am not in control of this. And these, these dream magicians here, they're telling us, just tell me the dream, sir, and I can tell you what it means. Tell me your birthday, I'll give you your horoscope. To which you say, no. I'm not going to tell you my birth date to get my horoscope. You tell me my birth date. <laughs> and then you give me my horoscope if you really have the kind of power to see that kind of thing. And so Nebuchadnezzar doesn't fall for this. You've got to be joking me. I get all you clowns in here and you say, tell me the dream and I'll tell you what it means. I mean, I could read that in some journal. The king answered in verse five, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be laid in ruins. Hebrew there is made into a dung pile. Our Aramaic is made into a dung pile. And that's something that they would do. If you disgrace, if you killed one of your political rivals or whatever, you disgrace him by burning down his house and dumping manure on it. There you go. Rebuild there, I guess. That's what the king says. You don't tell me the dream. I'll burn your house down after I draw and quarter you, tear you limb for limb. Now, you might say, that's an overreaction for a dream. But put yourself in this king's shoes here. He has a whole legion of people. Serious money has been invested in this. You remember Daniel chapter one. There's all the food and there's all the training. It's the wisest men. They're supposed to be able to do this. And now you get these guys saying, well, you tell me and I'll tell you. What? They're trapped in human deficiency. And this is prophesied, by the way, by Isaiah. Isaiah writes this, Isaiah 47, prophesying of this future exile. And Isaiah, in the context of Isaiah 47, is ridiculing that this is the chapter where, this is a section where you make idols by buying gold and making you know, dust out of it and putting it together into an idol. Or you saw your log and you turn it into an idol and you worship it. And in that section, Isaiah says this, all the counsel you received has worn you out. <laughs> Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who makes predictions month by month. Let them save you from what's coming upon you. Surely they're like stubble. The fire will burn them up. Isaiah says, you know, parade all those astrologists out here, all those people who know how to read a horoscope. Bring them on out here. If you live by your horoscope, you will 
you know, you won't even die by it. You'll just get frustrated by it. Imagine making decisions based off of a fortune cookie. I'm not a fundamentalist. I let my kids open the fortune cookies and we laugh at them and then we try to see how they're fulfilled during lunch. It's their little family game. It's funny to us. But imagine taking him seriously. You would do this. Let the stargazers come forward. You would be wearied out. This is the, the non-believers view of the future. It's dark. They can't see. And so they get frustrated. They get angry. Verse 6, if you show the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time. Let the king tell his servants the dream. We'll show it's the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I will know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. Let's just cut to it, king. You know, we all, we're all in on the joke here. We don't know what we're doing. There's nobody in the world that can do this. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They say, fine, we're gonna grant to you your presupposition that some kind of gods gave you your dream. They're not like us. They're not with us. They don't live with mankind. We can't know. Because of this, verse 12, the king was angry and very furious. He commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. He's not taking this very well. <laughs> this is the non-believer's view of the future. Now, I know that it's not always as extreme as the king trying to find out his dreams, or it's not always as silly as people trusting their horoscopes, but it is all the same. You don't know what tomorrow holds. This is James's point. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what will happen next week or next month or next year. It is wise to make plans about the future. It is wise to, to save money for the future. It's wise to strategize, to plant a field so that you can harvest it. This, that's a wise living. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about that. But it is foolish to trust your plans. You make them with wisdom, but if you build your life on them, you will fail. And you trust the Lord not your plans. And a non-believer can't do that. So they make guesses. They gamble. They make assumptions. And they try to predict the future, sometimes in the form of dreams, sometimes in the form of guesses. But all of it is futile and fickle. What a contrast with a believer's view of the future. Believers have a dependent view of the future. A dependent view. Verse 13, the decree went out. The wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them because remember, they've graduated from their school. They're considered the wise men now. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And you don't know the total sum. You get a little bit of what Daniel said in verse 15, but you don't get the whole speech. You just know the narrator tells you that Daniel did it with prudence and discretion. I like to think Daniel wrote this, inspired by God. I replied with prudence and discretion. It was a remarkable answer, really. Verse 15, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And the king's decree is urgent. Remember, he said, he told the sorcerers, you guys just want more time. I'm not giving you five more minutes. Go kill them all now. Daniel tells the king, calm down, man. <laughs> What's the urgency? Where's your dream going? 
Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. So Arioch told Daniel, no, you got to be killed because of the dreams. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, I don't think it means he walked into the king's palace. I think he made some kind of appointment with the king to go appear before. Remember, this is the world where if you appear before the king uninvited, you're killed. So Daniel makes a proper appointment through the proper channels. It required boldness, but it also required prudence and discretion. And Daniel has that, fortunately. And so he gets his time with the king. Daniel went into his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Here you're going to see their, their, um, their Hebrew names. And you're going to see later on in the chapter their Babylonian names. There's going to be a change with them. But here's still their Hebrew names because they're addressing here to their God. He told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven, obviously Yahweh, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Daniel's trying to thread a needle here. I mean, under Levitical law, those wise men should be destroyed but you're not in Jerusalem anymore. So what are you supposed to expect of them? Daniel's not angling to save the wise men. He's angling to save himself and his friends. He's obviously the leader of this. At the very least, he's the author of this. And so they go to pray. Verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So God answers Daniel's prayer by giving him insight in this vision. Different word than dream, but he gets this insight in this vision of the night. I think it's a different word than dream because dream is, I think, more abstract here, whereas Daniel is getting the interpretation of the dream. He's got this vision of it now. So now he is, he's on solid ground. Now he appears before the king. He knows the dream, and he knows what it means. This is the believer's view of the future. He responds with prayer. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now, Daniel knows the vision before we do here. Notice what he's saying about it, that in this vision, you're going to get the picture of God who sets up nations and who takes them down. God does this. He changes times and seasons, just like like summer will end and become fall and apparently winter immediately. God will remove one nation and replace him with another. It's not hard for God to do. He will remove one king and replace him with another. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. Notice the contrast between light and darkness here. Darkness does not dwell with God, but God sees the darkness, whereas light dwells with God. Light is from him. Just a powerful moral picture about God, a powerful picture of the creative nature of God. Of course, Jesus being the light. Light is at the Father's side in the Father's bosom. We see this in John 1.18, that our Savior is eternally coexistent with the Father, eternally begotten by the Father. You just get a little insight in there. I know it's not fully un- unveiled here, but just notice, even in Daniel's prayer, he recognizes darkness. God sees the darkness, but God is the light. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Verse 23, you've given me wisdom and might. You've now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. This is a group prayer with an amazing prayer request. The four men prayed and God answered their prayer. Now, I want you to notice something very important here. Daniel does not have wisdom into dreams and into the interpretation of dreams on his own. That's why I use the word dependent here. Daniel is entirely dependent upon God to reveal this. 
There is no promise that believers will have insight into dreams. There's no promise that your dreams are prophecy. And there's no promise that if your dreams are prophecy that you'll even be able to understand them. This is entirely unusual in Daniel's life. It took the prayer of the group. It took a unique circumstance and God gave unique revelation. This is not the normal way of Christian living. Now, it is not unusual for God to give revelation through dreams. Numbers 12, verse 6 says that God spoke to Moses directly, but to other prophets through dreams. God spoke not only to the prophets of Moses' life, but to Jacob, Joseph, Abimelech, and Solomon all through dreams, and probably more. Those are just the ones that I was able to think of this afternoon. Those people, God gave revelation by dreams. Now, it does not seem to be a New Testament phenomenon. In the New Testament, in the list of speaking to people by dreams, in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2, it says God used to speak that way. He used to give those miraculous gifts. Now he does no more. He's spoken ultimately through his son and those who saw him and bore witness about him. So it seems that that has passed. But in Daniel's day, notice that Daniel did not have the gift of interpretation. Daniel did not go around saying, oh, I can interpret dreams like you see the, the apostles doing in the New Testament, able to heal at will. This is a very dependent thing. So I say it this way. You as a believer do not have any access to knowledge about the future that God doesn't give you. Just because you have a dream does not mean it's true. Even though you're a Christian, not all of your dreams are true. That dream you have, like I gave you a list earlier, that doesn't mean that those things are true. You have to understand that. You're not morally responsible for what you have in your dreams. If you feed bad thoughts in your mind and then you have evil dreams, then stop feeding those wicked thoughts in your mind. But you're not responsible for what your, your sleeping mind is doing. You're only responsible for what you feed it. And so understand that. Don't put too much credence into dreams. I knew a guy at a church I used to work at that broke up with his fiance because he had a dream of a semi-truck that crashed. And so he thought, oh, this must be bad for my, my marriage. I can't. He broke up with his fiance. Unbelievable, because he had a dream. I think that's so silly, so silly and superficial and so far away from what Daniel is doing. Let me give you this verse as a contrast here. Deuteronomy 18. For these nations which you're about to dispossess, they listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, Yahweh, your God has not allowed you to do this. Don't listen to those people who can supposedly talk to the dead or tell the future. Don't listen to them, God says. Instead, notice the contrast. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses talking. From among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So notice this contrast between dreams and Jesus. In the future, Moses is saying, there will be people who interpret dreams. In the other nations, don't be like them. God will give interpretation of dreams to some of his people. I gave you that list earlier. But it's all temporary until Christ comes. Even in Deuteronomy 18. Because when he comes... From your brothers to him you shall listen. Now the Babylonians love dreams. Their culture loved dreams. That Middle Eastern culture to this day loves dreams. You hear all the stories about people in the Middle East getting converted by dreams. And praise God, if you have a dream about Jesus and it converts you to Christ, great. Your dream is only as true as the Bible is though. If there's one element, one syllable of your dream that goes beyond what the Bible says, don't trust it. But if your dream about of revelation of Jesus Christ is all in accordance with what the scripture says, great. Trust it, not because you trust your dream, but because you trust the Bible. And people get so caught up with the dreams in the Middle East that are sleeping in Iran and uh, Iraq that uh, all these people are getting converted through dreams. That means God's speaking to us through dreams. No, God speaks to us through his word. If you have dreams that line up with his word, then you can trust the dream only because it lines up with the word. But the second the dream goes a syllable beyond the word of God, stop, stop. 
Daniel here has both. Now has the king's dream and God's word explaining it. This is the dependent knowledge of the future. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me to the king and I'll show the king the interpretation. So now Arioch's own life is on the line because, I mean, he saw the king's fit earlier. <laughs> Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. Notice the haste there. Now they're, they're in a hurry because the wise men are getting slaughtered. And said to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. Now he's switching from the Hebrew to the, the Babylonian name. Are you able to make known the dream I've seen in its interpretation? And Daniel said the, answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions uh, of your latter days, the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel says, I'm going to speak to you with certainty. You're going to know the future. It's going to be exact. It's going to be precise. And it's only because God has given this. Notice that even here, Daniel doesn't take the credit. He said, this is all from God. And that leads to our third category. God has a declarative view of the future. Daniel has a dependent view. He only knows what God gives him. But when God speaks the future, he speaks it to it with precision inaccuracy. We will save that for next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do pray. Thankful that you are in firm control of the future. You speak and it comes to pass. You speak and it, you make it happen. You've read the book of our existence. You know the end of it from the beginning. Nothing happens as a surprise to you. Nations rise, nations fall. Kings come, kings go. Day becomes night. It all comes by your hand and your will. So Lord, we're thankful that you are the sovereign ruler of the universe. We're grateful that you hold the world in your hands. I pray for people who are here tonight. I pray that they would not cling to politics for their identity. They would not cling for the non-political. They would not cling to sports. They would not cling to their work, to their families. Lord, help us find our identity in you. We get so caught up on the next election, the next game, the next grandchild. It's so easy to forget that kings come and kings go. Nations rise and nations fall. So do families. You know them all, Lord. You are the rock that bashes the empires of this world to dust and then blows them away as if they were nothing. You are the rock with the signet ring, the stone the builders rejected. So Lord, we want to stand upon you for our identity. We want to stand upon you for our security. We want to put our hope in you. Lord, please guard our hearts. Help keep us away from falling in love with this world, for putting our hope in this world, for thinking that things that happen in this world will make us secure. 
We have this hope. It's an anchor for the soul that does not come from our government. It does not come from our country. It comes from you. You are the rock, Lord. We are anchored to you, not the rocks of human governments as impressive as they might be. We know government is good and used by you for good. We know that it's noble. We know that some of them are more noble than others. We know that Babylon had a head of gold and yet you were still able to crush it. So Lord, we put our confidence and trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.